We'll start now, now that okay. we're all laughing and warming okay, up. Okay, Richie, start the funny. <laughs> oh, actually, can we talk about the embarrassing thing that happened this week? Sure. Do, uh, do you know what I'm talking about? Um, I'll I just, you'll, you'll, rem- you'll, re- you'll remember straight away. Um, so we had our Tara Flynn interview. It was our last episode that went out. Yeah. And I think we're both pretty happy with how that went and it's been fairly well received. But uh, I was messaging my sister, my older sister, Claire, <laughs> and she... <laughs> My older sister Claire messaged me to say to this, she's a part of this big forum, this um, uh, this big group, the Facebook group that's just like it's a, it's an Irish group, and uh, so someone, some other girl on the group had posted a link to our interview saying because apparently this the the this forum is constantly talking about the repeal the eight movement and that kind of thing. It's very front of mind for them as a group, and uh, someone <laughs> linked to our show and said, "Hey, the What Am Politics guys uh, just recorded this interview with Dara Flynn about the Repeal the Eight movement. Uh, you guys should check it out." And my sister messaged me to say this. And I was like, "Oh, amazing! There's like you know forums, little pockets of the internet where people are talking about our our thing, separate from us, and they're they're enjoying it." And I was like, "Oh, this is amazing!" And I said, "Oh, are you going to comment on the saying that's your brother?" And she's like, "Yeah, I'm about to now." And I was like, oh, yeah, t- t- tell them uh, I'm delighted that they enjoyed it and to let us know if they have any questions. Uh, turns out, though, the person who originally posted it was your fucking wife. <laughs> yeah, because at simultaneously as this was happening, as you were receiving messages from your sister, my wife was giggling on the couch in the sitting room going, oh, my God, I don't believe it. And I was like, what? And then she, she goes, oh, I'll send you a picture. It's too funny to describe. And then in came... Someone talking about repeal the eighth. My wife posting up. Oh, um, there's these. There was this really good podcast about that. So she was being all cool and not pointing out like, oh and my coy. husband. Yeah, and then all of a sudden pops up. Uh, is it Claire? Yeah, Claire. Claire pops up. Uh, oh, this is uh, my brother that does it. It's so amazing. And that, at that point, Patricia started laughing on the couch and posted, "Okay, it's my it's my husband." So yeah, it was in no way viral or. Or impromptu, it was no. <laughs> it was the people oh. close to us bragging about us to about each other us through <laughs> us. Like in my case with Claire, I told her to say those things. I only, in fairness to me, I only heard about all this afterwards. Uh, oh god! Yeah. And then of course, um, immediately after they talked about how good the podcast was, Claire was like, "Say hello to Ted," which is obviously the most important thing. Yeah, it always boils down to that. F- quicker than I'd like, people got to Ted yeah. very soon after talking about us. Yeah, so um, thanks, guys. <laughs> and please, <laughs> hopefully next time, more than just uh, our sisters and our spouses will join and talk about this. Because even the thing that, even though it's a like really active thread, nobody else mentioned the comments or, or liked them or responded to them. <laughs> oh, brilliant. Next time. Oh, brilliant. Next time. Next time. We'll get them next time. Okay. It's a good episode, though. <laughs> So we're doing something different now. We're not doing we're not doing news anymore. No, um, I think we were having discussions about it, and we kind of realised that this isn't a new show. It shouldn't be a new show. This is like it's, a, ba- it's barely a podcast. Like it's, it's barely, barely it's barely yeah. what it pretends to be. 
So we'll continue to try and pretend to be like a broad explanation-y podcast. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of realized that if someone like only hears about us, like, you know, now, then they're going to have mm-hmm. to, if they want to listen to the back catalog, they have to go through 30 episodes where we, we, at the top, we talk for 20 to 30 minutes about things that have happened six or seven yeah. months ago, which isn't yeah. relevant. And like, like, it's, it's already irrelevant when we put these episodes live. Like yeah, because we're <laughs> we record them um, days, if not sometimes weeks in advance yeah. and then when we're talking well you know we don't talk about the news weeks in advance but at least days and yeah. by the time it comes out you know the things happen so quickly in today's feckin insane era that things are already out of date by the time we publish the episode so yeah, yeah no um, maybe in the future we'll maybe dedicate episodes to just talking about the news hopefully maybe record them and then quickly get them out or even think yeah. about doing another podcast of similar things but we'll we'll talk about that but for now yeah. what on politics is going back to its real raw roots yeah gritty Ooh, yeah steve yeah. makes up stuff and richie believes him yeah <laughs> although these days we're getting a lot of experts into uh i don't like, yeah yeah particularly for this fucking episode the expert yeah. we got in holy shit yeah we're getting a surprise winning journalist that's insa- insanity that is, yeah. So we're talking about China this week. Um, mm. We have been talking about China right in roundabout ways in other people's um, country, other countries' histories and in the news and stuff. And mm. every time we say it, we're like, oh yeah, we've got to do an episode on China because yeah, they are essentially the second most, if not one of the most important countries going at the moment. So mm-hmm. understanding a bit more about them is kind of important. So help me understand more, Steve, because I know shit all. Okay. As I mentioned all the time when we're just doing these Wadam countries and kind of broader political movements, it's probably important to say that context is always key to understanding um, mm-hmm. what's going on. So even though obviously the most important thing to get straight to is what's going on with China today, but especially with China, considering how long this country has been around, history is very, very important to understanding what's going on. Yeah. How long has it been around? China has been around for 4,000 years. At all? I mean, it's longer than Kildare, anyway. <laughs> you leave Kildare out of this. <laughs> I don't know how many emperors Kildare has had, but China's had 577 emperors. We've had 576, so they've got us there. They've got you there. Game of Thrones has got nothing on Chinese history. Really? Chinese history, up until the modern era, is full of conspiring eunuchs, noble families killing each other, brothers and sisters, I don't know, perhaps doing that thing, uh, but mostly killing each other and trying to grab power. you got to assume, law large numbers, at least one or two of them must have gotten it on. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's just been so many different uh, royal families and I mean, you know, at least some terrible things have happened. We're in for another sexy episode, you guys. (laughs) Oh, God. (laughs) Okay, moving swiftly on. The first dynasty that the historians have figured out was called the Shang Dynasty and they reckon that those dudes were around in 1700 BC. So when most of the countries in the world were still figuring out how to, you know, use these swords and spears to organize into armies as opposed to just like hitting each other with hard rocks. The Chinese already had themselves a proper dynasty with like proper power structures. And these royal dynasties and emperors, they lasted all the way up until 1911. So that's that's quite a lot of like serious history of dudes sitting on thrones calling themselves the emperor of China. Yeah. There probably isn't any other comparable country that has like such a a long... Well, Kildare, we talked about Kildare. Apart apart from, of course, the great nation of Kildare. But Mm -hmm. in terms of like... The biggest and most important countries. It definitely is one of the oldest with one of the longest histories. So I'm going to go ahead and compress all that history into a whole load of little factoids. Most of them I'm thinking are going to make you laugh as opposed to make you learn. But that's what this thing's all about. <laughs> oh, another thing to keep is that the Chinese are super, super proud of their history. Obviously, I mean, just like the people of Kildare, if they thought that their history <laughs> went back for 4,000 years, you're going to be pretty proud of it. Of course. Not only that, but China 
essentially is the anglicization of the of the Chinese translation for Middle Kingdom. And when they call themselves the Middle Kingdom, what they're saying is that we're at the fucking centre of everything. All y'all rotate around us. Oh, like the old school solar system approach. Yeah, exactly. It's like we're yeah. obviously we're, we're at the centre of things and everyone else just goes around us because we're so important. And to a large extent, the Chinese today are trying to bring China back to that. Like, I mean, not in like a literal sense. They understand that that was probably naive at the time for them to think that everyone was just thinking about China as they went about their daily business. Mm-hmm. But at least today, China thought, OK, we haven't exactly been so up at the top recently, so we're going to try and insert ourselves back into the important times. OK, so 250 BC, the first emperor, um, not exactly the first emperor, like I said, they've been around, but the first dude who actually conquered all of what you would call today as China and put it together in one stable Chinese empire kingdom. Right. He was Quinn. And he was an absolute bastard, a terrible <laughs> conqueror. So at the time, I think there was five or seven kingdoms. I can't remember which. And he had one and he decided, uh, I'm going to get all these other kingdoms and I'm going to conquer them and they're all going to be mine. And complete the set. Yeah. And so what he did was he got his army together, killed lots of people and took them over. Mm-hmm. He started the Great Wall. Oh, really? Yeah. It was at the time only made of like dirt and mound. At the, it wasn't like the wall. The, just, just the okay wall. Yeah, it was like, yeah. The, it's got potential wall. Exactly. So we'll see that like, different emperors have to go back and forth. So the Chinese were there in the part of China, but then on all the lands just outside that, places that are like Kazakhstan and Mongolia today, they're like big flat plains. And the people that used to live there were nomadic mm-hmm. horsemen who loved hopping on their horses, going in and fucking up China's shit, coming down from where the Great Wall protects them now. So... Every so often, starting with Quinn, the emperors would go, okay, we need to make this this grand wall bigger and bigger until eventually it did become the Great Wall. Mm-hmm. So anyway, your man Quinn, when he died after conquering half the world, he decided that I want to go out in style. So he decided that a massive mausoleum had to be built in his honor, kind of like the pyramids, but underground in like a big, in a big hill that right. they built specifically for it. They're still figuring out what is in this burial site because it is so large and so dense and so, and the history was kind of lost and so they're only putting it back together they think that the chamber that he's buried in is full of toxic mercury so that they even if they wanted to which I don't think they do because it would be disturbing history if they would open it up everyone would immediately die from toxic really? um, mercury poisoning because he left it there to protect his his, his stuff basically <laughs> wow that's how, that's how fond he was of his shit Jesus his PS4 his big curved TV <laughs> like all, all the cool stuff that he accumulated as emperor he's keeping in there protected not only that he was like okay I got all these these like traps to stop people but I also need a fuck ton of army soldiers and I want them to be made of terracotta life size and buried all around me so that's oh, wow. that's the terracotta army, which I'm sure you've heard yeah. of. It's like one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Um, Didn't they, did we talk? I think we talked about this before on the show. The terracotta warriors, like they kind of tour around, yeah. um, to different museums of that. And apparently, they they existed and they were maintained for however many like years they've been touring around to all these different museums and have remained largely unharmed until they got to Ireland, where one of them broke. Oh Jesus! <laughs> I think Paddy. One of them fell over in Dublin. Yeah. <laughs> hey, John, I'm going to get a selfie with the terracotta warrior. Hey, oh, oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus Christ you just destroyed a 7,000 or whatever or what 2,000 year sure old there's loads of them yeah. and in fairness there are there are yeah there and are. They are, no one's gonna miss one it is incredible it is incredible just the amount of manpower that went into just build, building this dude's fucking hole in the ground to throw his dead body is incredible mm. so yeah. I would recommend checking out some of the really amazing documentaries and stuff about that mm-hmm. so or the, the mummy movie where the terracotta soldiers came to life I haven't seen that's that that's also I know I that you're is a bit, that, we, am I we, making that up 
No, you're not. That's true. You are a big okay. Brendan Fraser fan, and I know I know you like to get the shout in every so often. Yeah, yeah. I'm 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 a bit of a more of a Georgia Jungle kind of guy, but occasionally I'll dip my toe into the Mummy verse. The first Mummy was actually pretty good. First Mummy was really good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, off topic, I think. <laughs> <laughs> so. There were quite a few emperors and quite a few centuries of different people um, taking over China. It would every so often it would break apart and get re like reconquered and re put back together by different people. Mm-hmm. And as that was going on, a couple of the Chinese dudes were like, "Hey, it would be pretty cool if we could organize like a civil service around our conquering armies to like grab taxes and figure stuff out. And it'd be kind of cool if you were to separate just giving the jobs to whoever you whoever was your buddy and if people were like actually qualified to work in the civil service. Oh. So the Chinese were one of the first ones to go, maybe we should have people skilled at their jobs doing their jobs in terms of the government. And they set up like a meritocratic system where you had to go and do tests to actually become a civil servant and like collect taxes and organize the government, which was really really innovative at the time. Yeah. And not only that, but like it was open to everybody. So if you were a particularly clever peasant who for some um, crazy ability was able to read and write mm-hmm. you could go and do the tests and then work yourself up to become one of the top mandarins so oh that's great so it's also worth mentioning that at one stage the world had two massive fuck off empires the romans and the chinese and they were only separated in about 100 ad by a tiny little kingdom in northern iraq that was kind of like standing there shitting their pants <laughs> with the romans on one side the chinese on the other going holy crap stick in the middle with you <laughs> yeah. so that, i think that's really cool as we're mentioning it's also the chinese knew about the romans and they were like oh shit there's another empire just over there you know mm. just past that mountain who were called the yeah. great quinn but there was unfortunately in, in terms of like the amazing uh, movies that we could have had since then, there were no big legions fighting, you know, um, scores and scores of Chinese soldiers. That would have been awesome. Though. That would have been incredible. Yeah, it, it didn't happen. Oh. So sorry, where are we in the timeline now? OK, now we're in the thousands, ADs. OK, so from zero AD up to 1000 AD, that's what we're flying through. OK, at this time, loads of the Chinese emperors were obsessed with getting immortality. And there was a big there was a big fad at the time for um, alchemy. And lads who were like, I can crush up these rocks and magic mushrooms and make a magic potion that'll make you live forever. And quite a few emperors died from drinking these poisonous elixirs that were trying to give them (laughs) immortal life. (laughs) You know, irony. (laughs) Yeah, I shouldn't laugh Um, at that. I don't know. I think it's... It's pretty hilarious. It is pretty hilarious. Like, it's too soon? Is Is it too soon? It's it's okay to laugh at an emperor of China in 800 AD drinking a poison he thought was going to make him live forever. (laughs) Okay, okay. Um, It's worth giving a shout out. So any Civ 5 players out there will recognize this particular character. Uh, Empress Wu Zitan, she was the only woman to ever officially be given the title of Empress, which is pretty impressive considering there was 576 dudes. Mm -hmm. So she arrived at court as a concubine. Um, which is kind of like the official mistress of the emperor. Mm -hmm. So the emperors, they loved having crazy sex with lots of different people. They would constantly have hordes and hordes of females, like basically at their beck and call. Mm -hmm. But this particular concubine was very, very clever and she knew how to play the political game. And she ousted the woman who was like the official consort, the like empress, the wife of the the emperor. Mm -hmm. And she ended up then continually eliminating her opponents until when her husband had a stroke, she was able to take control of the crown prince as his regent. Ah. And then she went ahead and knocked off the three crown princes in succession until eventually only her son was left. And she declared herself empress of a new dynasty at one stage. And she ruled for a couple of years until eventually someone was like, nah, get rid of her. 
because you know Game of Thrones yeah. stuff that's how what it a works badass. no one gets to sit there for too long yeah she was really badass and like I said she's the character in Civilization who whenever you start your game and you realise she's beside you you're like oh no she's gonna kick my ass when about was she active I didn't write down the year but I think it's around 980 okay cool okay and then we also have another one worth sending out I did write down so this dude's the 8th century so that would be like the 700 80s so his name was Zhuang Zong and he was essentially the Hugh Hefner emperor. He had tens of thousands of beautiful young women being forced to live in his palace as concubines. Oh, that's gross. Yeah, it's a record in terms of sleazy, horny rulers. I mean, even he would even give Donald Trump a run for his money in terms of the sleaze. Oh. <laughs> hi <Hi-oh. laughs> <laughs> Topical. Take that, Trump. Trump, you thought you were safe when you saw the China episode title. But no, we're coming for you. Um, but he actually uh, fell in love with one of the concubines over the others, this uh, lady called Yang Gilfei. And she became the official consort following the death of the previous one. So she actually, again, elevated herself to the empress. Mm -hmm. She loved the company of one particular military governor. So China was so big that the emperor had to delegate different lads across the country to rule in their stead in these different provinces. And one of those um, military governors, An Lushan, uh, was besties with the princess. What a name. That's an amazing name. An Lushan. Yeah. Fuck, that's great. It's pretty cool. It's like a fragrance. (laughs) An Lushan. So uh, Mr. Shan was very good friends with <laughs> the princess. Got and in order to make the princess happy, the emperor was like, okay, yeah, I'll give this dude loads of favours and gifts, including allowing him to organise a massive army along the northern border. And uh, can you guess what happened? Nothing but good things. Everything happily ever after. And Lushan rebelled and marched on the capital and the emperor had to run away. Oh, Okay. And when the Emperor's troops were like, this is all Princess Yang's fault. She has to die. The Emperor was like, oh, okay. So she was strangled to death. What? But the Emperor was so upset at having killed his favourite mistress that he actually abdicated in favour of his son. Wow. Yeah. Stra- death by strangulation. That's like a horrible... Well, obviously, any sort of death would be horrible, but that's like a weird thing to decree. Yeah, the Chinese you know I mean? in their medieval days had a lot of really weird ways to execute people. They had like death by a thousand pinpricks where you like <gasps> constantly get little pricks of, of, of like where you bleed. But then oh, no. there would be like thousands across your body and you would bleed to death by like tiny little drops of blood and you, then you'd die. Yeah, it was horrible. <sighs> um, yeah, this isn't the Wadan torture show, so we'll move on. The next dynasty worth pointing out are the Mings. So you probably heard of like Ming vases and stuff like that. The ones that mm-hmm. like are always getting knocked over in comedy shows. Like, oh my God, you broke a precious Ming vase, you dickhead. It's like, <laughs> a, uh, that sounds like a shitty comedy, Steve. I know they are shitty comedies. It's like, it's like one of the tropes. It's like, oh no, don't break my Ming vase. So these were the Mings who were around in the 14th to the 17th century. And as well as making amazing porcelain that the Europeans jizzed themselves over, they were so they loved it so much. They also created China into the powerhouse position that it was when the Chinese were to arrive a couple of centuries later when they were on their colonization binge. Mm-hmm. Some of the biggest technological advances that pretty much brought us into the modern era came from China at this time. So gunpowder, the compass, paper, printing. Things we use every day. Yeah, I mean, when are you when are you not using your compass while shooting shooting off gunpowder shots and writing down on your printing press? <laughs> writing down how awesome the things I shot were, <laughs> and then like crank printing them with your little type set thing. <laughs> I know you got a Gutenberg printer right there. Okay, I know you do. Um, they also went and said, okay, this big pile of mound dirt that we're using as the Grand Wall should become the Great Wall, and they started turning mm-hmm. it into the stone structure that the thing that we're like 
that's so famous today. You know, you know the image of the Grand Wall of the Great Wall. That's them. I'm going to keep on nice. calling it the Grand Wall now. God damn it! What's the thing? Like, and this is the other thing. Like in Ireland, Grand is like a a middle of the road kind of eh, kind of thing. But yeah. Grand everywhere else means like grandiose. Yeah, exactly. Whereas like when I say it, I'm I'm meaning like yeah, it's it's fine. Well, it's fine. The fine. Yeah. The, you know, the, the okay wall. Yeah. It'll do, Wall. <laughs> the Mings, they organised the empire into like a, a really badass, hard-running, good empire that was the size of what is essentially now modern China minus Tibet and a couple of places in the West. Mm-hmm. They brought up the technology, they got the economics together, but unfortunately it's really hard to keep these kind of things together. So by around the 17th century, the Manchus, who were from the northeast, they came in and took over. They're, they were essentially what was foreign, like a foreign ethnicity compared to what the Chinese were before. Mm-hmm. But now they would be considered like just part of like the regular Chinese ethnicity. It's all been merged since then. But at the time they were considered foreigners and invaders and a bit strange. Mm-hmm. And when they came in and took over, they made everyone adopt their hairstyle. What? And if you didn't adopt their hairstyle within 10 days, you'd be executed. <laughs> what? Okay, well Steve, answer me this. Was it a dope-ass hairstyle? Uh, no, it was like half a shaved head with a really long ponytail. Can I look this up? What's it? What's yeah, up, go what ahead. Am I Googling? Uh, Manchu hairstyle. Manchu hairstyle. Uh, oh my. Yeah. Oh my lord. <laughs> I'm going to add so, this to the show notes. This is terrible. If you oh, that guy's making it work. That guy's pulling it off. <laughs> okay, yeah, that's not a great look though. Except for that one guy. That one guy's doing a good job. What, so what was the practicalities of this haircut? Like why... There was no practicalities. It was it was like a it was like a flexing of power. It's like we've conquered your formerly great empire. You hand hand Chinese people, so now you have to do what we do, which is have these ridiculous hair. Okay. And if you didn't, we're going to chop your head off. So most people were like, okay. I can't stop looking at this one guy who's really making it work. <laughs> You're going to get it done yourself, are you? I'm thinking about it. Oh, well, maybe, maybe. Yeah. Anyway. So what, ne- what what happened next? Okay, so we'll kind of put a cap on that because um, after the hands and when the man <laughs> put Manchus, a cap on that terrible haircut. <laughs> at, at the terrible haircut, let's draw a line. So surprisingly, after they got these terrible haircuts, it, it started what's known as the age of humiliation. At this stage, we're talking like the seventeen hundreds, eighteen hundreds, and China before that had been big, important. Um, other countries around the area were like giving the emperor gifts just so he wouldn't come and kick their ass. Mm-hmm. But when the Europeans came knocking for trade and they were like, hey, look, we got all this stuff that we want to trade with you. The Chinese were like, nah, like, what do we need your stuff for? We're the Chinese. We got everything we need. Mm-hmm. Um, the only kind of trade that was going on was silver. So the British um, were like, OK, but why do we want to keep on giving you silver when we're growing opium in India and we can trade you that instead? Mm. So they were sending lots of opium into China and the um, quite a few people were using it too much and getting addicted. So the emperor was like, uh, this ain't good. You crazy, strange little British dudes from your weird little island over in the West, you've got to stop doing that. And the British were like, um, no, <laughs> we're going to keep doing it. And not only that, but we're going to bring our big warships that you guys haven't had to interact with before that had gotten pretty modern and devastating after they started adopting gunpowder in better ways than the Chinese had before Mm -hmm. and they attacked them and it was such a devastating (gasps) attack that the Chinese were forced into a really shitty treaty that gave away Hong Kong like to the British and not only that it um, so before nobody was allowed to trade with China and after this the British forced them to open up six cities to trade, forced them to make, say that the British had like special privileges for trade. So mm-hmm. if China ever wanted to do a trade deal with someone else, they had to give the same benefits to the British automatically. So it was uh, like, it was a really shitty thing to do. So before China were big and now China is, it's, it's not feeling so great about itself. Mm-hmm. Um, this started to run into, to destabilizing 
the entire Chinese system. So it was before where it was big and held together by the power of the emperor and his and his empire and his like um, military and and civil servants and stuff. Once you kind of poke it a little bit, the whole thing started to fall apart. There was massive instability. Um, people were getting massively addicted to opium, so that means that they were less productive, able to give less less able to give money up the up the ladder to the to the government. And things started to fall apart pretty badly when there was a rebellion called the Taiping Rebellion, which is still, in terms of people hurt and killed in the actual fighting itself and the famines that was caused by the by warring instead of growing food, it was one of the bloodiest conflicts that's ever happened. Really, and it's definitely the largest civil war in terms of in terms of victims. And this is like the eighteen fifties we're talking. Wow, this was started by a really weird dude. So he was like uh, like a lower middle class. Um, guy who wanted to become one of the civil servant mandarins but he couldn't pass Mm -hmm. the test because he wasn't smart enough (laughs) so he ended up becoming a christian and then had visions that god and jesus and i think he i think at one stage you might have thought that he was jesus um wanted him to create heaven on earth and the way to do that was to like bring in what what the equivalent would be like communism where people would be more equal and stuff and he was like, okay, the way to do that is through massive conquest, war and destruction. As, as you do. As you do. That kept on going and it pretty much ripped China apart. There was massive devastation. The ah. emperor was just about able to defeat these guys and he managed to get it back together. But by the end of this, again, China was just in pieces. It was really hard to hold together. And the European powers kept on sailing in and taking bits of China. Like the, the, At the time, the Europeans... We're like, okay, so we've colonized America. We're done with that. Um, They had pretty much gotten most of Africa. And they're like, oh, there's this big thing over in the East called China. Let's do the same thing that we did to them. Mm. The difference, I guess, being that there wasn't any big unified civilization to fight back in America and Africa, whereas there was in China. But at this stage, it was starting to fall apart. So it was ripe for the taking for these European colonists. The monarchy managed to limp on and on until eventually in 1911, it fell apart. There's actually a really nice mm. movie that was made in the early 90s called The Last Emperor. Did you see it? No. It was, uh, it's about, um, it's about, again, the, the dude who was the last emperor who, by the time he took over, I think in 1911, he was only a kid. And when the first like half an hour of the movie, you're still in the Forbidden City and everything's got like the traditional Chinese costumes that could be anywhere from like 1500 up till then. But then mm-hmm. uh, about like about 30 minutes in, you realize that it's 1911. There's the modern era is here. And it's is just all a little bubble that he's been living in. And essentially, he's the emperor of nothing. The entire place is falling oh, apart. Oh, wow. Wow. And the different warlords that were going fighting each other on the outside had actually taken over. And it got to the point that the emperor was essentially um, dissolved and a very shaky republic was declared. And they got the strongest warlords to call himself the presidents. But after a couple of years, he was like, I don't want to be president. I want to become a new emperor. And he got the Japanese who were starting to invade via Korea. So if up in the northeast of China, mm-hmm. they were like, oh, yeah, we'll um, we'll be your buddy. We'll give you a backing. But then the rest of the Chinese were like, that's not a good idea. These Japanese guys are after our land. Mm. We can't back you as president, let alone emperor. So then that very shaky republic broke apart very quickly and more chaos, civil war. And kind of like the map of China would have been broken up into loads of little provinces and districts and there would have been essentially warlords governing each of these different like areas. It wasn't one unified China anymore. Wow. It was just loads of lads tearing lumps out of each other and fighting. Pretty chaotic. And if you were living at this time as like a regular person, it would have been pretty hard to live any kind of a normal life. I'm sorry, what year? This was after this is 1911. Like, this is like 1911, like in the 1910s. Okay. 
coming up to the 1920s. So out of this chaos, two main factions emerged. Um, There were the nationalists under Chiang Kai-shek. In terms of ideology, they would have been like capitalist and kind of quite similar to what we have today, but like with some influences of fascism that was kind of rising over in Europe, they were kind of copying some of that. Mm -hmm. And then there were the communists um, who eventually were led by Mao Zedong. They were, they were trying to copy what the, what the Bolsheviks had done in Russia. We talked about that before. Yeah. Um, Like to the teachings of Marx. So these two guys ended up being the main factions coming out of all this instability and fighting. They actually started off as allies, but um, Chang, the leader of the, of the of the nationalists, decided that he was anti-Marxist, and these were these these communists were just as dangerous to Chinese to the Chinese stability as as any foreign power. So they decided that they had to be gotten rid of. So he ended up um, pretty well defeating them until there was like just a like a little of them like encircled and he was about to wipe them out entirely when led by Mao they managed to break out about 80,000 of the of the communists and their soldiers and they went on a long march to try and get into hiding in the mountains in the southwest but the march was so dangerous so hard that they went from 80,000 to 8,000. <gasps> no fucking way. Yeah. That's devastating numbers. It is. But these 8,000 that were left, these are the guys that essentially got together and formed what was to become the modern um, Communist Party. And as I'm sure, even though you guys are learning about what China and its history is, you know that the communists are the ones who win. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah. So this is where, this is where like the proper ideology came from. Um, actually, it, they're really proud of this part of their history, the communists. So this is like a museum area now in modern China. Mm-hmm. And you can go and see the little caves that these guys lived in as they were regrouping and getting themselves back together. Wow. So as they were doing that, like licking their wounds and trying to get back together, Yaman Chang was, he was recognised as China's leader by most of the international community. Um, but he wasn't that cool. He was, a, a, he was, he was turning into a proper dictator. He was taking tips off the Nazis. So as he was doing that, Mao and his communists was able to like get more and more support off the peasants because Chang was not doing much to help them. Yeah. Standard of living still remained pretty low. It was pretty hard to live a normal life. Also, as this was, so we're moving into the 30s now. The Japanese keep on getting hungry and hungrier for Chinese territory and then they start to launch a proper full-scale invasion from Korea. Chang seen this and he realised that if the Japanese kept on coming, it would be devastating. So he agreed to pause his conflict with the Reds and join forces with the communists against the Japanese. Mm. But that truce was really, really weak and pretty soon, after even like less than a year, it broke apart and so the three factions were basically it was like a it was like a Mexican standoff they were tearing lumps out of each other simultaneously the Japanese the nationalists and the communists God that went on and on until 1945 basically the Japanese were doing pretty well yeah. and if it wasn't for the European and American intervention in the other parts of the conflict I mean the Japanese probably would have been able to take over all of China but the atom bomb was dropped the Japanese emperor stopped uh, immediately so then it was just the communists fighting against Chiang and his nationalists mm-hmm. Mao under the leadership of Mao the, uh, and during World War II the communists did really well to consolidate power in like really important areas so by the time the Japanese were taken out of it and it was just a civil war between Chiang and the and Mao the communists were in a really good position mm. by 1949 they had actually pushed Chiang off mainland China so it went from in the 30s Chang is the leader of the nationalists. He's basically president of China, the top dog, to 20 years later when he's gone, he's kicked out. Wow. And he took his his forces and about 2 million people who were his supporters to Taiwan. Mm. And they set up what's called the Republic of China, whereas Mao consolidated his power in mainland China and set up the People's Republic of China. This is worth noting, actually, because after World War II, we've talked about it before, there was the Soviets versus the American and the Western Alliance. Mm-hmm. They The Americans recognized Taiwan as the legitimate China. So they, 
didn't really call it Taiwan. They called it China. Mm-hmm. And they got a seat at the UN on behalf of China, even though they only governed the small island in comparison yeah. to what the mainland was. It wasn't until the 70s that the world recognised the communist China as being the real China, which is what oh, we really? have today. That yeah. recently? Exactly, yeah, that recently. And at the moment, even now, Taiwan doesn't officially call itself Taiwan. It's China. Mm-hmm. China doesn't consider Taiwan a nation. They think it's a breakaway province of China. And now at the moment, everyone has switched their recognition to the real China, the one that's in Beijing. Mm-hmm. But if anyone was to recognise Taiwan as being like a proper independent country, they would immediately get a slap in the face from China because they just see it as like a breakaway China that needs to be reabsorbed into the main fold. They're never going to let it be declared independent or anything like that right. because they're, they're still fighting the civil war that went on and they don't want to let them have the win. Mm-hmm. So yeah, we're up to the 1950s. Mao had managed to win the war. He's taken over. So just to give a summary from the humiliation era when the empire fell apart and they got the shit kicked out of them by loads of European powers and the Japanese up to when the communists took over. Um, That is called the century of humiliation. And it is really, really important in terms of understanding what the communists tried to do to bring China back together. Yeah. So we'll talk quickly about Mao. He took over. He was dude number one in terms of the communist movement. Mm -hmm. Uh, Everyone was like, oh, we only achieved this because of Mao. So he started to use his power to consolidate it together to basically put himself at the center of everything. They started like they were communists. They were anti-capitalist. They thought that Part of the reason that China hadn't been able had fallen apart was because they let the capitalists get too much. Right. So they needed to start grabbing parts of the economy and seize private land. And quite a lot of it was pretty devastating. There was an awful lot of people that were determined to be like the bourgeoisie, like the landowners. They were killed or or just treated very badly, sent to prison camps and stuff like that. Mao realized that he needed to get China up into the modern era really quickly to stop a potential invasion coming again because there was the Soviets up in the north who were on paper they're allies but China were always kind of afraid that the, that Stalin and his and his soldiers may decide they just keep on rolling down to the south and grab more land yeah. and equally afraid that the European powers and them or the Americans could come back and try and conquer them mm-hmm. so they realised they need to get their shit together he enforced modernization upon the place but it wasn't really happening fast enough from out so he decided in the 50s that China had to take a great leap forward and that was not successful at all his attempts to force people to move to the modern era just ended up kill, um, killing lots of people in terms of famine and suffering and and just like anyone that tried to like say no to the plans were shot. So wow. it was it was quite devastating. Um, by the time that had failed, we're talking like the mid to late 60s. Um, some of the other party leaders were like, this communist thing isn't working so well. And we're thinking it's hap- that's because of Mao. Um, too much of it is being put into him. It's like a cult of personality. And at this time, the Soviets had, had recognised that a lot of the bad things that were happening to Russia was because of their emphasis on Stalin. Mm. So some of the Chinese guys were like, we we probably should intervene or at least ask Mao nicely not to be so central to everything. <laughs> but unfortunately... How'd that go? Yeah, well, you can imagine. <laughs> uh, Mao was like, okay. And actually, like if you look at the history, for a couple of the years, he was like, maybe. But then all of a sudden he woke up and he was like, no, fuck that. I'm the centre. You guys are just trying to establish yourselves as the new governing elite. And you want to bring things back to the shit way. So he's like, the only reason my revolution is failing is because of you guys. And he pointed at all the people that were in the elite. And then they went, Gulp. Uh oh. So, what started is known as the Cultural Revolution. Um, millions of students and young people that had grown up with the revolution, um, so 
like kids in their late teens, early 20s, and there are quite a lot of them, um, decided that, yep, Mao is the man to do this. And anyone that's an authority figure that disagrees with Mao has to be gotten rid of. So students started turning on their teachers in universities. Whoa. Kids turned against parents and it erupted, it erupted into like a proper really dangerous civil war. Um, soldiers started turning against their officers. Whoa. The army started to be destabilised. It got really out of hand. And it wasn't like, um, I always thought before I did proper reading into it that it was like a programme that was enacted by Mao, kind of like what Stalin was doing with his purges where he had like secret police organising it. That's what I always thought the Cultural Revolution was. But it wasn't. It was more like a grassroots thing that came up and yeah. like these people just got like really, 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 really fanatical and started and started like causing chaos and killing and declaring that if you were against us, if if you were any way against Mao, then you were against the revolution and you had to die. And it caused an awful lot of devastation and disability. Party leaders just kept on disappearing across the place. Um, It was anti-intellectual. So anyone that was considered like to be an intellectual that like that was like that was one step towards criticism of Mao and his movement. So they had to go. There was loads of zealot youths. There was there was clashes with the army. So they would like take over. Uh, a compound and the army would like okay like this is this is this is not right this is instability we need to take them over so they had actual like different pockets of fighting breaking out and um, Mao realized that he started something that he doesn't really have control over anymore and he was like oh shit I'm in, in trying to fix China I may have just broken it really badly and this may turn into like a full-scale civil war so he tried to put a stop to it by ordering these youths that were on his side to go out to the to go out to the agricultural lands and and try and put their energies into growing rice as opposed to killing his enemies. Yeah. And they were like, um, okay, I guess we have to agree with you because that's our whole thing, but this doesn't yeah. sound so good. So but I want to rage against the machine. <laughs> exactly. So he tried to put a stop to it in '68. But it took until like yeah, Mao died in 76 for it to properly end. So right. you're talking nearly 15 to 20 years of instability in China, oh, like in a proper God. time. Like the current president of China, President Xi, his dad was a party elite leader um, before the Cultural Revolution. And he was one of the fellows that was targeted. Um, he didn't lose his life, but he did lose his power. And Xi and his family were forced to live in an agricultural camp. And Xi had basically where he went from being like one of the princes of the of of the revolution like potential power dude to having to work his way up again. So he did he did have his dad's name which helped him but at mm-hmm. the same time he had to go in and do hard graft because his dad was one of the fellows that was targeted during the cultural revolution. Mm. So pretty bad stuff going on during the Mao time. Um, Holy shit, yeah. It, you'll you'll notice that in in modern China Mao is still quite revered by the communist party he's still held up as being the dude that started it all like his picture his, his portrait is still a massive is still massive and dominant over um what's it called um tiananmen square um mm-hmm. he's still considered like a good leader they haven't had kind of the reassessment of him like they did with stalin but in russia so you probably still wouldn't get away with saying bad things about him in china Right. Most people outside China recognize that although he did hold China together, conquer it for the communists, he did a lot of bad stuff as well. Right. So just to quickly mention, when Mao took over, he reconquered loads of bits. So he took over Tibet and he grabbed some provinces in the West that China had lost. And it was under Mao that China like got the actual border that you recognize as being modern China today. Mm-hmm. He also kept on throwing Chinese soldiers into fights across the world uh, in North Korea, North Vietnam and different places. Um, they had a little fight with India. Mm-hmm. So... 
he did quite a lot. Um, he died in 76. Um, this new dude came in, uh, Deng Xiaoping, who had been Mao's second and kind of went a little bit quiet during the Cultural Revolution, managed to survive with his life. And after he took over from Mao, he's like, OK, we need to get our shit together. If we don't, the whole thing is going to fall apart. And as I mentioned before, in the 70s, um, the the communist China kind of made buddies again with the West to a certain extent. So they were, he was able to go, OK, let's relax these communist rules, get a bit of private enterprise and some free trade. And even foreign investment came in. So... Yeah, he, he kind of put China onto the onto the path that it will be today. And cool. before I go properly into that, I'll mention that at, at in the late seventies, the Chinese governors looked around their country and noticed an awful lot of people. <laughs> it's like right. this place is going to get pretty full, so they enacted what most people know as the one-child policy. Mm-hmm. And since I don't know enough about the one China policy to t- tell you about it properly, I thought we would get in an expert to talk about it. Mm-hmm. So we decided to ask Mei Fong, a very smart lady who was the... Uh, Too smart, I would say, for this show. <laughs> we'll let you guys decide. <laughs> oh yeah, you want me to cut in the interview then? Okay. Yes. The only problem, I can't control this ambient sound outside. There's a little bit of yard work in the surrounding area, so you might hear the faint sound of some, uh, you know, lawnmowers and stuff. I'm oh, that's I- cool. We, in the business, we call that character. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so we're being joined now by uh, Mei Fong. Um, she is a former staff writer for the Wall Street Journal based in the China Bureau. That's correct, isn't it? That is correct. We're off to a great start. <laughs> Just uh, you guys won a Pulitzer Prize for your reporting back in 2007. Mm-hmm. That was then, yeah. That is definitely oh the first... Yeah, we've uh, moved up in the world having a Pulitzer Prize winner on the podcast anyway. It's a big step up from asking our buddies back at the start. So <laughs> so you recently uh, brought out the book uh, One Child, The Past and the Future of China's Most Radical Experiment. Yes. It's about um, China's one-child policy. So I'm 30 years old and for as long as I can remember as I was growing up, it is always something that we've always known about China is that they had this like pretty radical government policy that families were only allowed to have one child. So I guess in your book, you kind of go through that and, and kind of... Uh, explain it to the Western audiences. So do you want to just give us a quick rundown as to like why China decided to bring in this policy and how it worked out? So, right. Um, back in 19, well, before 1980, actually, um, there was in the 60s and 70s, a big concern in the world about overpopulation. China wasn't the only place that was worried about it. I mean, even in the West, uh, they started this um, organization called the Club of Rome, which talked about what a big, big issue it was. There was this uh, Stanford professor called Paul Ehrlich, who had a very unlikely bestseller talking about how we would basically overpopulate the world. So in some of these um, projections of the future, basically now, um, there was this uh, some projections by MIT scientists that basically calculated that uh, we would overrun the planet's resources if we didn't check population growth. Now, China, of course, is the world's most populous nation. So it was, of course, very interested and very concerned with some of these issues. And um, and also it was a very poor country. Um, it, uh, it had suffered a lot through uh, the very politically tumultuous time sure. with uh, the Japanese invasion and communism and cultural revolution. So all these things were obviously very bad for economic growth. And on top of that, it was the world's most populous nation. So these were all strong concerns. So in 1980, when China unveiled uh, the one-child policy, 
a lot of people in the world thought it was a good thing and um, they welcomed the idea. What they didn't understand at the time was that um, some of the workings of the idea were not such a good thing. I mean, it vastly contravened human rights uh, issues. And what they also didn't know was China already had in place some um, population um, planning policies that were already drastically reducing population growth and that weren't as strict as, the, as this one-child policy, which is also a misnomer. The name itself, one child, makes you think that everybody in China has just one child, sure. but that's not necessarily true. Oh, really? Yeah, no. Uh, basically, it was a set of policy. It was a name that came up, um, and it's not even a name that the, that the Chinese officially call it themselves. Oh. They just call it Jihua Shengyu, uh, you know, family planning policy. What it did was it Strictly speaking, only about a third of all Chinese households were restricted to this one child per household rule. But most of the households that were under these restrictions were in the cities. So about all 90 percent of city dwellers, especially in major cities, uh, had to meet uh, follow this requirement. But they also made some um, allowances for different sorts because, you know, Ch- China is a pretty big place. You can fit two Western Europe's in there. There's just no way you can govern everybody to do that. And so there were some allowances. So, for example, if you lived in the countryside and your first child was a girl, you might be allowed to have a second child because they know that a lot of people want sons, especially in the countryside. Uh. Um, if you worked in a sort of a hazardous profession, like if you're a coal miner, you would be allowed to have an exemption. Oh, wow. If you're one of China's ethnic minorities, let's say if you're Tibetan or or um, from a Hui minority, you know, for example, uh, then you might be allowed to have um, you know, then you uh, more children. So there were a lot of res- um, allowances. So strictly speaking, it was more like a one and a half child policy for all China. <laughs> but of course, that sounds like a really super clunky name. And, and so people, you know, just called it a one child policy. Mm. And so it went on for a super long time, well over 35 years from 1980. Right. So long enough to shape a generation. If you had been born in China, Richie, chances are you might have been, you know, from the one child generation, as they called it, oh, wow. especially if you were born in a city. But the problem was, the longer it went on, the more problems it was showing. You know, what was what was very clear after a while was that China was going to be a place where it was going to be too many, too male and too few. That was basically the issue. Mm. So one of the problems is it's a very patriarchal, male-centric society. Um, Chinese uh, custom and cultures all uh, favor the son. The family name is passed on to the son. Inheritance is passed on to the son. It's kind of a little bit like what England was in Downton Abbey days, you know. <laughs> so, of course, when you tell everybody, a lot of people, okay, you, you got to choose. You can only have one. Um, then, of course, a lot of people chose to have sons. Mm -hmm. And so after 30 something years, what happens is you have too many men. Um, Basically, China now has a surplus of bachelors of about 30 million. 30 million is about the size of Canada. All of Canada. So 30 million Canadian boys basically standing around somewhere in China not knowing what to do. Oh, man. Yeah, and with no hope or prospect of getting brides um, or women or starting families. And, of course, there's a whole host of problems that come along with a society that's too male, right? You know, think of prisons. Think of um, places like um, the Middle East and Arab Spring that resulted as a result also of this kind of a demographic um, imbalance. So that's one issue. Mm. The other problem with... 
um, having the one child policy going on for as long as it did was it creates a situation where you have a huge explosion of old people and not enough young people to take care of them. Mm. Um, so, you know, this is what they call the dependency ratio. So every healthy economy in the country, you need a certain amount of working adults to support a retiree population, you know, to, to, uh, to continue making money to, so that all the old people can withdraw their pensions and all the benefits mm-hmm. when they retire and no longer so economically productive. So currently China has like five working adults to support one retiree. That's a really good economic ratio. Mm-hmm. In a matter of 20 years, that's just going to shift to one and a half adults oh, to wow. support one retiree. So that's huge because China's, mm. you know, has this huge population that's going to retire and age out, right? And that's not a function of the one-child policy. It's just a function of people living longer and they have a lot of people and these people who are the same people who made um, your iPhones in the factories and made this big, huge uh, manufacturing boom mm-hmm. are just going to go older and probably live longer because we have advances medicine now. And so by 2050, one in three Chinese people will be a retiree in, actu- in absolute numbers that is more than all of Europe oh my god um, if senior if the senior people in China were to form their own nation they would be the world's third largest nation <laughs> you would have China itself India and then senior China could be the world's third largest nation by population right. oh, I want to see that I want to see a nation of old Chinese people and a nation of sexually frustrated bachelors <laughs> it's, 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 a, it's a huge problem right and then, you know and then this is the, 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 the problem that the one child policy is created so last year they said okay okay, right, fine, we're, we're getting to the point where we just can't do this anymore. Mm-hmm. We really need to switch things. So they announced a, a switch to a nationwide two-child policy. So, you know, and and then and, and there are all these signs indicating they will probably drop that eventually too and just, you know, like just have at it. And <laughs> there are a lot of signs also sh- suggesting that they are actively encouraging people to have children now. And this is really a big sudden, you know, change after 30 plus years of telling people don't have so many children, the one-child family is the ideal. And then now they're going like, please, please, please have more children. <laughs> um, Make signals. Yeah, huge, huge changes in signals. And you know, of course, people don't work that way. Right. You know, it's it's much more easier to prevent births than it is to make people have babies. I mean, I think a lot of Europe has been in that situation where oh, they're yeah. trying to get people to have kids, you know, go home early, turn off the lights early, let's get busy. <laughs> and, and, and it's not really working, is it? <laughs> I'm just imagining uh, public service announcements are saying, hey, sex is great. Yeah, let's get Get it on. (laughs) (laughs) No, Mr. Prime Minister, stop telling me that. Um, oh, that'd be amazing. So I had a quick question. You talked about China being relatively poor, but then over the, you know, the one child policy has been in place for about 30 years or so. And during that time, we've seen some serious economic growth. Mm-hmm. Are the two correlated? Well, there's always a temptation to link the two because they happened at the same time, right? Mm-hmm. But if you really think about it, right, most of the China's economic growth for the last 30 years has been because of a manufacturing boom, right? Mm-hmm. China basically became the factory of the world and made every everything, uh, starting from the cheap stuff like T-shirts and toys and now iPhones and stuff. And manufacturing is driven by labor, cheap labor, which means lots of people, not fewer people. And lots of people, these were the people that were born and were able to become workers in a time before the one-child policy was launched because the one-child policy started in 1980. So the people who are old enough to be factory workers um, born off that policy, 
now. And now China is no longer the manufacturing center because labor has gotten very expensive. So the people who grew up were the ones born in the 60s and 70s who were old enough to go into the factories and start working and being the source of cheap labor, which drove much of China's growth. So it's more people, not less. Mm. And now China's growth is actually slowing down. And one of the reasons is because it has fewer people. So it's not um, that the one-child policy um, drove economic growth. It didn't. I mean, it did help in a sense. Obviously, having fewer people means more resources for all. Sure. Mm-hmm. But the problem is, and I think this is the, the tendency people tend to equate, is you know, ha- reducing your population is not the same thing as having a one-child policy, right? There are many countries that reduce populations um, in a, without go- having to go through anything so drastic as a one-child policy and without some of these real problems that they have now, you see. So you mentioned as well um, that the family's preferences was to have uh, boys as opposed to girls. Intuitively, that's not exactly something that it's easy to make a choice on. Mm -hmm. So could you just quickly go through um, what kind of measures the families were going to 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 try and get boys. Yeah, well, I'll tell you, and there's a little bit of a personal story in this too, because here's the thing. Um, My family is of a Chinese ethnic origin. I grew up in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. My grandparents were from China. So we carry a lot of the old ways with us, you know. And uh, one of the things was a love of sons. My father, my grandfather had, let's see, 18 sons. My father was oh, this. What? My father was this 16, one Busy six. man. Yes. And by the way, we, well, of course, in Ireland, maybe that's not such a big deal because you guys do have large families. Um, we do, um, yeah. But when I say 16, 18 sons, we're just counting just the boys, 18 boys. We're not yeah. counting 18 children. We're counting 18 boys. And of Ooh. course, he had three wives for that. So that, that helped a little bit. And it, <laughs> it takes the pressure off. Yeah. You know, then when my father got married to my mother, they had five girls. I am the fifth daughter. And you can imagine what a a disappointment that was for a very traditional minded Chinese family uh, where boys were the valued uh, denominator. So I remember going for family gatherings. Chinese New Year was always a big one for us. And, uh, you know, there would be my mother and all her five girls and all the relatives would be looking at the five girls and going... Oh my God. And I would hear, you know, that, you know, all these aunties would come and say, well, you know, you're lucky you're not born in the old country because if you were born in the old country, you would probably have been given away or left by the village. Well, oh God. And so this was a, a kind of a backdrop against, you know, this, this is the very patriarchal culture, very uh, male centered. And um, and so when they announced the one child policy and, you know, people were driven to all sorts of ways, um, one, they would hide their daughters, um, you know, and not register them. So that way they would not um, have to pay the fine for having broken it. So they would save the registration for the boy. But then, of course, what that meant was the girls would be even more of a second class citizen because if you didn't have a birth certificate, you couldn't register yeah, for schools, you couldn't register for health services. And you end up growing up in this kind of a as a second class citizen, you know, even more so than just being a girl. Mm. And so there's this class of of kids that were never registered in China and grew up in this sort of lost generation. And they call them in Chinese, hey, Heiser or black children. Wow. And um, there are about 13 million of them, you know, oh. so this whole generation of uh, talent just gone. Oh, um, that was one way. The other way was, of course, if they gave them away. So, um, you know, at this time also in the 90s started a huge explosion of children adopted from China into the world. Do you, you know, I'm sure you've seen some, I mean, England has a lot 
lot of uh, kids um, who are adopted from China. Most of these are girls. Mm-hmm. Uh, all in all, about 120,000 uh, children were adopted from China during that period, and a majority of them were girls. And these were girls that were primarily given up in a large part because of the one-child policy. So that was one way. And then and, and internally, of course, and then, of course, the third way, which is what started happening very soon after that, was right about the 1990s, they started developing um, sonar technology that could be used to scan your fetus um, and the sex of the fetus very early on. Companies like General Electric made them small enough so that you could carry them around. And so what people started doing was scanning for the sex of the fetus. And if they discovered that it was a girl, they would abort. In general, um, nature makes it so that there are about 107 girls born for 100 uh, boys. No, 107 boys. Sorry, the other way around. 107 boys born for 100, 100 girls. Um, in, in China, it's more like 115, um, which is the biggest uh, imbalance in sex ratio in the whole world. And in some provinces, it's as much as 143 boys born for every 100 girls. So this is why China and uh, has a, a lot of so-called what you call missing women. You're talking about something like, anyway, estimates between 40 to 60 million missing women, which is to say women that were never born, that were, you know, killed at birth or, or given away. Whoa. And so cumulatively, the problem now is China is since they have... They, they need more people. But not only do they ha- not have more people, they don't have the women to be the future mothers. Uh, and they don't have the women to take care of all these old people. <laughs> because, you know, let's face it, it's mostly women who are in charge of elder care, uh, daughters-in-laws and all that. So, so it's not just a question of uh, mm-hmm. lack of people, it's lack of women. That is going to be a big problem for China going ahead. And when you mentioned that the, the, the Chinese are finding themselves now without people, um, Germany actually a couple of years ago when they're faced with the same demographic crunch they decided to open up their borders and let in one million refugees. Mm. But that doesn't seem to be something that China would even consider. Is it just that China is just so big that they wouldn't, they don't look to the outside world for any kind of solutions to their problems? Well, just in one inward? way is, of course, they never have to think about it before. They're the world's most populous nation, right? Why are they looking to add yeah, more sure. people? So that's <laughs> yeah. one problem. So then two, the other issue is China is, is, is quite homogenous. You know, I mean, it's it's a huge proportion of what we call the Han majority. Yes. Uh, I mean, like, you know, when I first moved to New York and I was taking the subway, I'd be amazed. You know, you see people with different color hair, different complexions in the subway. You don't see that in China. You take a subway, everybody's got pretty much, you know, black hair and, um, you know, uh, pale ivory skin. We all look pretty much alike. It's a very homogenous society. So the question of uh, with as with you know immigration is always a problematic one because you have political issues you have issues how uh, one is how much of a large population should you bring in and two how you're going to assimilate them in so you don't have problems especially if culturally you know there could be issues um, if you look at Japan for example uh, mm-hmm. Japan is one uh, country that has lots of problems with um, similar to China aging demographic um, fewer fewer people having children but Japan is actually a much richer society so they are they have at least one thing that china does not have um on a per capita gdp but the other issue is also they're also very resistant to the idea of bringing in um a a sort of a a, a alien population yeah and so that is actually a political issue but even if you set aside the politics if you talk about 30 million you know bachelors 
Can you think of any way that you can import 30 million women to China? I mean, where are you going to get those kind of numbers? You know, it's just impossible. So, of course, what you do have as a side is what black market. You So there's been a huge rise in trafficking oh, no. of women, especially from the bordering nations, uh, Cambodia, Vietnam, North Korea. And that's never a good thing. So no. that's, that's again, a problem. Yeah. Oh, wow. So was this, so the, the, the choice to go from one child to two child, was that, that was made by um, President Xi's uh, administration? last year. Uh, yeah, so it was considered one of the major moves or changes uh, in when his administration was still new um, and, and, and quite a popular decision, of course, since everybody appreciates having uh, more choice rather than less choice. And do you think, because there's been 30 plus years of a one-child policy, like that's a couple of generations, is that enough to permanently have an influence over how people think about family structure? Like, is is it going to take some time to get away from this? Yeah, I think the question is, you know, how how, how much can you change in a diamond? My, my, my form of thinking is actually you can't. If you spent 30 plus years on, you know, relentless propaganda, um, of, you know, sort of saying the one child family is ideal, it's very hard to turn on a dime and mm. tell everybody that, you know, you should have more children now. Uh, some of this has got to stick. Otherwise, the whole advertising industry should just go and pack up their bags. <laughs> you know, messaging can be very insidious. That's one part of it. And then, of course, the other part of it is it is a general trend, you know, in, in modern societies. If you educate women and you send them to schools, then what happens is family size will naturally shrink. Mm-hmm. Uh, women are spending more time in schools. They're not having family starting age of 16 or 17. Then, of course, you're going to have fewer kids. So that's already going against the trend. And then on top of that, you spent 30 plus years drilling people into telling them that they should have fewer children and small families are the best. It, they're really batting against, um, you know, a lot of uh, very difficult things. It's very hard to imagine uh, how they could sort of change the balance backwards. Mm-hmm. So moving away from the one child and just then onto the, the broader aspects of uh, Chinese politics going on at the moment, what did you make of the uh, recent party congress and um, President Xi being, his his, his uh, philosophy being added to the, to the party's constitution? Do you think that represents any kind of big significance in terms of where why, where he's going to take the country in the next five years? It's very clear that it's going to be what he wants. And, that, you know, and that's a, a big departure from China. In the last, I mean, China has always been a very authoritarian government. It's ruled by a very small select group of people. It's a, The inner workings are very opaque. But it has never, not since I think Deng Xiaoping, had such a strongman ruler. Um, the, you know, his predecessors, Hu Jintao and uh, Jiang Zemin, were were uh, much less, you know, uh, had much less power. So, you know, one, you're going to have, this guy has a, mass, a huge amount of power, not seen, I think, since Mao Zedong. And secondly, there's no term limits and indications. Normally at this, this is his second party Congress, uh, the five year, they w- he would have announced a successor and people would have looked to see who was being groomed as the next head after him. Now, no successor has been announced. Nobody, oh. there's no, so, so there's, a, there's a possibility that he may be going on well past 2050, 2060. So it could be a long time. And of course, when you have one strong man in power of a nation, he obviously has a huge ability to shape the nation in lots of ways, and not just the nation, but beyond. And what we're starting to see is a, you know, a, a, a rise of authoritarianism um, in the previous um, regimes. I mean, there was a period of time in the early 2000s where China looked like it was opening up. Yeah. And that was always the theory that the Western democracies had, right? 
if we draw China into the fold, if we bring them into the global, if we invite them to join the WTO and all these things, and they become, they will become like us. You know, they will become a more democratic society. It will be more open. Now, that theory looks like um, it has no steam now. You know, China is more powerful. China is part of the global order, but China is doing what China wants. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you know, they are imposing their own vision of what they think is human rights, what they think business should be run, how trade should be run. And as they get more powerful, and, and this is also a time when we see the U.S. drawing back in terms of its involvement in the global uh, order, um, then we will see more of that. I mean, the U.S. drew back from the trade uh, TPP, the trade uh, Trans-Pacific uh, Trade Agreement, um, and then China put out in place something like what they call the One Belt, One Road um, initiative, which is a huge sort of a trade um, infrastructural agreement that's going to draw lots of countries. It's going to spend a lot of money. It's going to make a lot more friends and influence the rest of the world uh, with a lot of these deals. And of course, with all these will come a different kind of a world. I mean, a lot of the Western uh, countries used to involve, um, say, Africa uh, nations with um, trade deals that would involve a certain amount of measures of uh, expectations in terms of human rights, for example. Uh, China does not. <laughs> um, so this is all obviously going to change uh, things globally, not just not just domestically. And do you think there's going to be uh, more potential for conflict around the region as China starts to flex its muscles? Oh, most definitely in the Southeast Asian region, um, you know, China has been flexing its muscles for quite a bit. Um, it's been building all these coral atolls in the middle of the South China Sea and the East Asian Sea, and they've been basically building them into military uh, bases. Yeah. Um, you know, so basically, uh, and, 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 and despite, you know, some of the countries fighting back and going to uh, UN International Court of Law and, and winning, you know, China's basically said, well, sorry, we don't recognize that ruling. We're, we're just going to do what we're going to do. And there's been basically no um, global order or no uh, country that's been willing to really come up and stand up to them about that. Obviously, the nations involved in the question are, are too small. They're looking to the U.S., their traditional big brother, for a little bit of help. But the U.S. has gone into the, we're just, uh, you know, America for Americans alone. Yeah, we all so, know how that's uh, going. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. So so unfortunately, this is a, obviously with uncertainty comes destabilization, you know. Um, so what we probably will see is a rise in military escalation, you know, um, especially with what's been going on with North Korea, uh, you know, country, countries like Japan, which has traditionally held back from building up a nuclear arsenal, yeah. are, are suddenly, you know, going to start thinking, well, look, we can't depend on the U.S. anymore. Uh, you know, we've got this na- next door neighbor of a crazy guy with nukes and he, you know, he can easily fire something that would come at us. We need to sort of arm up. And so a lot of these countries are, are making these kind of calculations. I like what Angela Merkel basically said. She said, we need to go it alone. We can't depend on the U.S. as an ally anymore. And yet plenty of other countries who maybe haven't said so, so outspokenly are in, in, in action doing exactly that. So just a final question before we let you go. Was I reading recently on Twitter that you finally got your book published in, in Chinese? Yeah. Um, and that was a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> Would you, do you want to quickly bring us through like what kind of trouble you had? Well, okay. So my book came out to, uh, when I sold my proposal for my book, um, I did get an offer from a Chinese language uh, publisher in China to publish the Chinese rights. But they wanted the right to sort of alter any sensitive content, which is very standard proviso for China. But I wasn't sure. I was like, I don't know. What does this mean? Let me finish writing the book and then we can concretely discuss the changes that you want to make. 
And then, of course, in, that was about three, four years ago, and that's about the time when Xi Jinping took over. So, And then what we started seeing was a huge tide in clamping down on free expression in China. And so then the publisher said, look, I don't think we can get this published anymore. So oh. I thought, okay, maybe I can get it published in Taiwan or Hong Kong, because those are smaller economies, but they're traditionally more free. But then, you know, in 2015, there was this really bizarre case in Hong Kong where there were a bunch of uh, booksellers who used to publish these kind of uh, salacious, um, anti-China books, you know, uh, Xi Jinping and his secret lovers or whatever, <laughs> that kind of stuff that, you know, a, a lot of people from the mainland China used to love to go to Hong Kong and buy all these forbidden <laughs> fruit, you know. Uh, so it was a big cottage in. Industry, but then what happened was some of these uh, publishers disappeared, and then they ended up in mainland China on TV confessing to all sorts of sins. Um, you know, uh, I ran a traffic light. I, 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 you know, all these things. And so what happened was it sent a huge chill through the publishing industry in Hong Kong. So that basically killed that industry. Nobody there is daring to put out uh, books that are sort of seen as anti-China because you know what, you might end up being kidnapped and, and in prison. There's still one guy, one of those booksellers, who's still believed to be in detention. And he's a Swedish citizen. Oh, my God. Yeah. So so no can do. So when I couldn't get it published and I thought, well, OK, I can just let it go, you know. But I thought it was really pathetic. I, I wrote a book about China that most Chinese people cannot read. <laughs> and I thought that was kind of, you know, defeatist. So I said, well, can I do anything about it? So, of course, the main issue is getting it translated. So I said, OK, if I can get it translated and pay my way on my own, then the second part is distribution. So I raised a bunch of money um, on crowdfunding. Um, um, and s- donations and stuff and paid for the translation. And then I released it as a free download digitally on my website and other places so that people, you know. And then the funny part of it was after that, some publishers did come calling again, and including this one that I'm going to finally get published in, in Taiwan. Um, and it's going to come out in a book form, but I'm still keeping the free digital download so that people in China can read it. Um, and, you know, obviously this is a very stupid move for a book writer who wants to make money. <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, just give away your stuff for free, right? Why not? Uh, but um, I felt there were more important things at stake here. Sure. If I could do this and if I could do this and sort of still at least cover my costs, then it was important. It wasn't like this was a book, you know, it was Italian rights or, or Japanese rights or whatever else. You know, this was a book about China yeah. <laughs> and we didn't have a Chinese edition. It just sort of seemed really sad. But then, you know, it happens a lot too. I mean, I a lot of friends who've written stuff about the Middle East that's never been translated into Arabic, you know, and because part of it is because we're depending on publishers to pick it up. And then, you know, it's a commercial minded issue. It's expensive. And if this, you know, I felt that like if it's important enough a message to put out there and you can do something about it, then why not? Sure. Yeah. Amazing. Well, congratulations for finally making it over the line anyway and getting, yes, and getting it into book form. <laughs> Thanks very much. We're going to let you go. Um, again, that was Mei Fong. Um, we're going to put links to your book in the show notes and everything. So if people want to check out a great read on the one child policy, they can go there. So um, yeah. Thanks very much again. Thank you so much, Mei. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye. Okay. So. Thanks, to- May. Thanks, May. Uh, that was a really, really amazing interview. Um, yeah. I certainly learned a lot, most definitely. Yeah, I, I was actually really tempted, like when we were asking questions, at just one point to go, "What are you doing here? Like, why are you on the <laughs> show with us?" <laughs> hey, look, no, act as if that's the way it is. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, we got a Pulitzer Prize winner to give us information <laughs> mm-hmm. because we acted as if. Yeah. So May covered. Uh, the one child policy really well there's no point in going over that but um, we mentioned a couple of things that um, we haven't had a chance to mention yet in the explanation so uh, at the moment China is entirely mixed in with the western world um, it's moved on from its communist era even though the communist party rule 
the policies that they're enacting are not communism. Um, mm-hmm. In 89, when the Soviet Empire began, began to crumble, um, some people in China thought that there was going to be room for, oh, well, if the Soviet Empire communist regime is crumbling, maybe we can start to reform ourselves and get some freedom and maybe get rid of the Communist Party. So a couple of hundred thousand, if not a million people gathered in Tiananmen Square in Beijing to call for more freedoms. And mm-hmm. they thought that because the wave of freedom across the world was on their side, that the government would be like, oh yeah, okay, we're going to give you some. Um, mm-hmm. They didn't. The The Chinese government instead sent loads of tanks and killed an awful lot of people. And yep. it was, it was the, the eyes of the world were on this and it's still a really pertinent part of Chinese, um, of Chinese contemporary time. Mm-hmm. They were not even sure how many people died when they, when they cleared Tiananmen Square. Um, that's how, that's how shady and dangerous Oof. it is. And the Chinese Communist Party ever since then have not really been willing to budge an inch in terms of their governance over China. And I don't see that changing in the future. In fact, under the present president, I think, if anything, he's trying to make sure that China can, that the Communist Party can keep control of China as it continues to modernize. Because the assumption of Western liberal commentators and observers of the world is that um, the way it works is a country is a, is a monarchy and a dictatorship and then they get freedom and open to the world and, and then eventually the political freedom comes afterwards and that's the way it always works. That's the way it always is. Um, is that your impersonation of just a... Of a yeah, a dweeb. Of an academic. <laughs> yeah, of like a, a talking head on CNN or something saying these things. Uh, that I don't think you can make that assumption. History is too narrow for us to assume that because things have happened since the 90s, it's always going to happen. You can see mm-hmm. in Russia that didn't happen. Um, they went back to being authoritarian. There's so many other countries that managed to hold on to their bad authoritarian tendencies. And I'm pretty sure that like even in China, even though there's massive humanitarian um, problems, like if you speak out against the regime and you're considered important enough, you will disappear or get imprisoned. Um, it's dangerous. It's bad. Um, they they don't have open internet. I mean, apparently it's not that hard to get Facebook and Twitter in China. You just need to get a VPN, which isn't that difficult, but mm-hmm. it's still an official government policy that you're not allowed to get it. Yeah. And if anything, they're getting, they're doing even more. So there is a strong possibility that for the next foreseeable future, the Chinese Communist Party will remain in control of China. And mm-hmm. under President Xi, that's not showing anything. If anything, the most dangerous thing is that as opposed to it at the moment being like for the last 20 years since Mao went, there hasn't really been one fellow who's been like the center of it all. They've kind of spread it across the top rulers of the Communist Party. It's kind of going a little bit back towards the one man rule with Xi, or these people are afraid that it is because he, he seems to be consolidating a lot of the power in himself. And people are afraid that it's going to go back to being like a an oligarchy party uh-huh. rule to being one dude dictator kind of rule, which right. is more dangerous and unstable. So hopefully that doesn't happen. Yeah. Three things to keep in mind when thinking about China and its future. The first point is, will President Xi become a dictator as opposed to like a head of an authoritarian party? What we just talked about. Um, so he, we, we need to watch it. He's only been in power for five years. He's coming into the second term. And normally after two terms, the, the president of the Communist Party steps down. We're not sure if she's going to do that. It's too early to tell. So we'll give him a couple of years before we declare that as as being solved. Um, the other one is that will the economy keep on growing and will China keep on developing? Because that's one of the reasons the communists have been able to hold on to power so well for the last 20 years is that people's lives in China have been getting better. They've lifted hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. They've developed a really big middle class who have all the toys and gadgets that the, the Western middle class have. And that's mm-hmm. like people are willing to 
people seem to be willing to let um, humanitarian and democratic freedoms lapse if it's if you can get access to McDonald's. That seems to be the, that seems to be one of the human rules. That's what I've always said. Yeah, I mean that's. <laughs> ba -da -ba -ba -ba. Oh God! <laughs> but people have always been wary about whether or not this Chinese economic boom can keep going because there's only so much that you can be, keep on rapidly developing before before you become like the other Western countries and just become like modern and then yeah. it's it's normal low stable growth after that and whether or not they can keep the economy going without a, a like a proper bust and mass unemployment and mass um economic collapse which probably would not help the stability um that again people have been saying okay now that's when the the chinese burst is going to be oh uh, there's a world recession then china's going to fall and we're all fucked that's definitely going to happen it hasn't yet so whether or not that will is still to be seen mm -hmm. And then the third point to keep an eye on on China is will its rise in international power remain peaceful? So right. China is flexing its muscles. It's grabbing land around the place. We talked about that with May. Um, they're building islands in the South China Sea to try and claim territory over the seawaters there. And mm -hmm. um, they're getting involved in other countries from South America to Africa. I mean, they own the water company in London, as far as I know. Really? Yeah. Like they're, they're, they're properly international now. Um, and as that's going on, America, everyone is saying, is starting to lose influence. So the superpower that was in charge is starting to get weak. The mm -hmm. the rising power is starting to come up, is starting to get strong, is challenging that superpower. And what is called... Um, I'm good. Okay, so I thought I did pretty well pronouncing Chinese names. And for some stupid reason, I thought, okay, let's bring in a Greek name to try and make, <laughs> make it even harder for Steve. So there's this thing called uh, Th Thucydides. Ah, oh, shit, that's totally wrong. Say that again, Steve. <laughs> Okay, I'm, I'm not going to be able to say it. There's a trap, an ancient Greek dude's trap called T-H-U-C-Y-D-I-D-E-S trap. Okay. Uh, uh, Thucydides. <laughs> it's really important, Richie. It's got to do world war, okay? Sorry, you just, you just so hear my this, friends saying silly sounds is always going to make me laugh. This Greek dude, uh, when he was looking at the, the rise of, of Sparta against Athens said, okay, whenever a great power threatens to displace another, war is always going to be the result. So there's loads of books coming out now from from those geopolitical commentators <laughs> who are saying there must be a war between China and America because China, America is the great power who's getting displaced and America is not going to go down without a fight or China is not going to be able to rise without a fight. So mm -hmm. people are always afraid of this happening. There's no such thing as a guaranteed rule when it comes to politics or international power. So that, you know, who knows? Hopefully not. Mm -hmm. Because if that happens, it isn't going to be very good for the people involved, which, and the people involved are probably going to be the whole world. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's pretty much China, start to finish. Um, a big, Thanks, big, May. Yeah, definitely. Thank you, May, for giving us so much Pulitzer Prize winning knowledge about <laughs> Yeah, China. that's ours now. You can't have that back. That's our knowledge. <laughs> uh, May asked us to give a particular shout out to the fundraising um, that she's doing to try and get the book distributed across China um, yeah. she got it translated but she still needs a bit more help to get it out there so if people could spare a couple of euros dollars pounds whatever your particular currency is um, please mm -hmm. check the show notes and we have the information there yep do it it's a good cause uh, okay, is that it? Do you want to move on? We'll we'll quickly play through the the, the last few bits because this is I know this has been a long episode. It has, and and we've been taking up a lot of your time, and I'm sure you've got other things to do. Um, like listen to the next episode. Like listen to the next. I go back and listen to her back catalog over and over again and repeat. Uh, do you want to do what I'm keeping you saying? Yeah. What's uh, what's keeping you saying? 
Uh, well, right now, because we're, we're, we're pre-recording this early, I'm in Tanzania. So um, and it's super, super hot over there because it's their summer. So air conditioning is what's keeping me sane and very much alive. <laughs> OK, so you're recording this while in London before you leave. But you're trying to tell me that what's keeping you sane is the thing that you're not doing, but it's in the future. Yeah. Richie, these, you're not good at keeping me sane. You sound like a crazy person. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well then, forget that. Uh, American <laughs> Vandal on Netflix. That's, that's keeping okay, me sane. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty cool show. I must check that out. It's um, fucking amazing. It's so good. If you're a fan of like the true crime genre um, and that kind of ty- type of documentary, you'll love this. Because I, I didn't realize there were so many tropes around that genre, but it turns out it's ripe for parody and American Vandal is perfect at it. What's keeping me sane, I'll quickly jump in because again, we have to let you guys go, uh, is yeah. Shadow of War. War, the new what? the sequel to Shadows of Mordor the Lord of the Rings based game that I'm playing on the PS4 that. oh it's so good my brother, got it? It, my brother got it for me before my birthday because he knew I enjoyed the last one so much and yeah. uh, it's pretty pertinent news at the moment because apparently Amazon have bought the rights to make a Lord of the Rings TV show yeah apparently it's going to be one of the most expensive TV shows in history this simultaneously makes me really excited and terrified yeah I yeah, don't they, know what's going on. They could very there. easily fuck it up. Is it a prequel or is, are they just redoing the whole trilogy? They haven't said. Um, huh. They in the in the like the discussion around it, people are saying it's probably going to be based on other things that Tolkien has wrote. But who knows? Who knows? They who may knows? just make it all up. That's it. Okay, let's 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 wrap it up then. Okay. Um, the whole like like subscribe share stuff you okay. know the deal by now yeah. okay alright um, yeah like subscribe uh, give us a shout out Reco- record a message we'll, we'll talk to you soon um, bye bye <laughs> that was quick <laughs>